Robin on Purim. Cool. Um, I guess you're supposed to get so drunk you can't tell the difference between Batman and Robin. Okay. Um, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm just recommending drinking. I mean, if you're 21. Um, that's about it. Um, I guess everyone else has already done that. Uh, who are you? <sighs> I choose you. Okay, yes. Oh, Pikachu, I choose you. But that's very big. That's no pocket monster. Well, that, okay. All right. Okay. And have we seen Jesse and James around? That's a good thing. I love them. They're, they're like the only normal people. Oh, they're trying to steal Pikachu, so I've got to stop them. <laughs> Why are you so obsessed with one? One darn Pokemon. It's just so strange. You can get a different Pikachu. Like, seriously. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're an international crime syndicate. He's 12. He's 10. Pikachu is 10 or Ash is 10? Ash is 10 forever yeah. and ever. He ages up and then goes back. Yeah, kind of like <laughs> Peter Pan. Um, Peter Pan, the vowel quality of whose name is the same as Nash, to whom we now turn. <laughs> you do what you can, and sometimes you grasp with strong. so smooth it seemed rough. Um, for next week we're doing done, just to remind you. So there's done in both volumes. Um, so for Monday you should read the done in the 16th century volume, the Emerus Jones, and then for Wednesday the done in the other volume, in the Alistair Fowler volume. Um, so uh, then, you'll, then we'll be done with done. Which is, which is a joke that Dunn himself makes. Um, when thou, um, that's okay. When thou hast done, thou art not done, for I am more, um, is what he will say. Um, all right, let's start um, just looking at a couple of songs from Nash. Um, so this is page six fifteen of um, of the uh, Jones, um, and these songs are from the one play that Nash wrote. Um, called Summer's Last Will and Testament. And um, the, uh, the play is sort of of the form of a mask. That is, it's the end of the summer. Summer is dying, and um, in the play, Summer um, is um, talking to those to whom uh, he is going to leave what remains of um, life and of summer. Um, but Summer is also the name. Does anyone know who Will Summers is? Of Henry VIII, actually. So he was he was um, in an age in which jesters were much admired, um, in which the great court jesters were really, really great. Um, and uh, there's just a string of a amazing jesters in court, and then b amazing. Um, uh, actors who play jesters on stage. Um, there were two really prominent actors who were who were just everyone loved who played um, for Shakespeare. 
Um, Shakespeare wrote The Fool in King Lear because he had an amazing actor to play him. Um, Will Summers was the most famous. And so um, summer here is both the season and a recollection of this jester from two generations earlier, um, this very famous jester in Henry VIII's court. Um, so, and in um, the play is written um, in a year of play. Um, so there are all sorts of topical references. It's um, written in 1592, and there are references to things that are going on in 1592, including a plague. Um, and I guess, um, so these are three songs from the play. Um, let's look at the third one, the one um, a page later, 616, um, which is probably the most famous one. Um, and um, it's um, in, the, in the course of the plague, um, the characters in the play are singing this. Um, it's a litany that they're singing as um, plague is ravaging the world. Um, plague was an amazing problem. I mean, it wasn't a Black Death-like problem in the 16th and 17th centuries in England, but it was still an amazing problem in 16th and 17th um, century. And it, it continued to be an amazing problem um, pretty much till close to the end of the 17th century. And then for reasons that have something to do with hygiene, but also something to do with the scariness with which things appear and disappear, um, it kind of disappeared um, from, from Europe. Cholera came, came later. There were lots of plagues of cholera later. But this isn't cholera. This is bubonic plague. Um, and um, plague itself, um, when plague broke out in London, which it did in crowds and did fairly regularly, um, one of the things that happened was the playhouses were closed. And a whole lot of the history of um, English drama uh, is connected with um, waves of plague. When the playhouses were closed, Shakespeare didn't write plays um, because they weren't performed. Um, and then he wrote other kinds of poems, like the poems we read in this class, probably a lot of the sonnets, certainly The Rape of Lucrece and um, Venus and Adonis. Um, and uh, there, it, it was a huge thing, plague. Um, so it's not something that only appears in plays. It's something that appears around plays. It appears at plays. Um, so here's this song. Adieu, farewell, earth's bliss. This world uncertain is, fond are life's lustful joys. Death proves them all but toys. None from his darts can fly. I am sick. I must die. Lord, have mercy on us. Um, what does fond mean in line three? Foolish. Yeah, it's foolish to um, believe you could say, in life's lustful joys. It's foolish to believe that they have any meaning. Um, they don't last. They're em we, we might say empty are life's lustful, lustful joys. Um, so here's a person dying of plague. I am sick, I must die, and calling upon the mercy of the Lord. Adieu, farewell, earth's bliss. This world uncertain is. Fond are life's lustful joys. Death proves them all but toys. None from his darts can fly. I am sick. I must die. Lord, have mercy on us. Rich men, 
trust not in wealth. Gold cannot buy you health. Physic himself must fade. All things to end are made. The plague full swift goes by. I am sick. I must die. Lord, have mercy on us. Um, what does physic himself must fade mean? Yeah. That medicine? Medicine, yeah. In this case, standing for the doctor. The doctor will die too. Um, it's not that they're the sick and then doctors who help the sick, and those are two different populations. Um, it's the doctors are dying as well. Physic himself must fade. Everything has to die. And then the most famous stanza of the poem. Beauty is but a flower which wrinkles will devour. Brightness falls from the air. Queens have died, young and fair. Dust hath closed Helen's eye. I am sick. I must die. Lord, have mercy on us. Um, just paraphrase what you can of that. Yeah? Um, maybe like people seem to think that beauty is something immortal, but it's not. Mm -hmm. um, it, it too will fade. But... Yeah. Yeah, it's a flower which wrinkles will devour. How will wrinkles devour beauty? You get old. So notice that that's in a form we've seen before. Um, where do we see that kind of sentiment in poems we've read? Yeah. yeah you see it a lot in Shakespeare. You see it a lot in Shakespeare. Um, how does it work in Shakespeare? What are you thinking of? Okay. Um, what about the comparison to a flower? Beauty compared to a flower. Sort of. Like I've heard flower in like a sexual term, and it's sort of like almost a reference to virginity. Mm -hmm. And sort of how that can't last. I don't know if that's a stretch. No, that's what we saw in Spencer. Um, that is the. Um, the virgin rose, how bashful she, the virgin role is bashful. Um, that is, um, if you look at the rose, first it springs up and it's a virgin and it's very bashful, but then um, it spreads out in its full um, flowering and then lo, how swiftly it, it fades away. Um, that's not in this book or I'd show it to you. That um, I give that out as a Xerox. Um, Leah? Um, I wasn't actually raising my hand. Okay. <laughs> Um, why compare beauty to a flower besides that it's beautiful and in some, in some ways erotic? That is, um, uh, you, can, you can see ways that it's erotic, um, especially it depends what flower you're comparing it to, but you can see ways that it's erotic. Yeah? All flower has to wilt, and ultimately it is very beautiful, but it eventually will Yeah, so it's, it's both um, the idea of it's being really beautiful, what more beautiful than a flower? but also really ephemeral. Um, so why, why the insistence that beauty is ephemeral? What kinds of poems have we seen insist on the ephemerality of beauty? 
Yeah. Gabriel. Yeah, or as I said, carpe. Yeah, sleep with me because um, your looks aren't going to last. Um, in specific, the kind of carpe diem poem called a carpe florum poem. That's what we've talked about. Seize the flower. Um, that is now, while the flower is beautiful, now is the time um, to use it, to use the fact that you're a flower while you can. So generally, it um, appears in kind of um, threatening but happy contexts. It's like now is now you're at your peak, so you should enjoy it, um, because the way Marvell will put it, as you'll see, um, it's uh, in his poem to his coy mistress. He says, "At my back, I always hear time's winged chariot hurrying near." So the reason that we should have sex now is that time is hastening upon us, um, hastening to age us. Um, he goes on to say the great famous lines, the graves of fine and private place, um, just in case that's what you're looking forward to. That's, that's great. Sure, I get that. The graves of fine and private place, but none, I think, do their embrace. So it's fine and private and everything, but you're not actually going to there's a certain kind of fun that you can't have in the grave. Um, Dunn actually won't agree, but Dunn is very strange indeed. Um, so, but here, it's almost as though what Nash has done, it's Summer's last will and testament. Um, what Nash has done is taken the reversal of the fear of death into the desire for sex. That's the sort of strangeness of a carpe diem or carpe florum poem. You're going to die, let's have sex. Um, as though it's a really sexy thing to be reminded that you're going to die. Um, and it's as though what Nash is doing is reversing it back, saying, you know, beauty itself, nothing lasts. It's all sad. I see something beautiful, and all I can think about is how sad it is. So beauty is but a flower which wrinkles will devour. Brightness falls from the air. Queens have died young and fair. So what do you think of that line, brightness falls from the air? Probably the most famous line Nash ever wrote. There's a book by Jay McInerney. Um, he's most famous for Bright Lights, Big City, a contemporary novelist, which is simply called Brightness Falls, but takes that line as its epigraph. Um, what do you think of it? Yeah. Um, imagine that you know, as people mature, they obviously realize that things aren't as they seem. This refers to sex or something of that nature that um, brightness falls could just um, imply that it wasn't as great or perfect as it's supposed to be. Okay, so um, things aren't as, as perfect as they once seemed. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, day turns into night. Day turns into night. Um, yeah, the air is bright and then it, that falls away. Um, do you want it to mean more? Does that mean enough? Yeah. Well, could air in this scenario mean like, like your personality, like someone's air? Do you want it to mean that? I think that there's certainly room for interpretation. Do you want it to mean that, though? I'm 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 now asking. Do I want it? Yeah, no, I'm now going to ask you a question, which in a way is a heart of the question of poetry. I feel like which that is, makes a lot more sense than something more metaphysical. 
Yeah, but that's, I'm not asking whether it makes more sense. So here's a line yes, which, which is very mysterious, brightness falls from the air. And um, a whole lot of the experience of reading poetry, I think in a sense, um, the fact that this is a song, the fact that all these that all of these are songs. So I said I wanted to talk a little bit, or wanted us to talk a little bit about the idea of songs. Um, do people know the fairly contemporary poet Kenneth um, Koch, who died, I guess he died about 10 years ago, five or 10 years ago. Um, he wrote a textbook that used to be used in schools. Actually, it wasn't much used in schools, but it should have been, um, called Rose, Where Did You Get That Red? Um, subtitled Teaching Poetry to Children. Um, and he was a New York school poet. If you know who John Ashbery is, he was in that school of poets that John Ashbery know. Um, well, he's just great, Kenneth Koch is. He is really, really great. And towards the end of his life, he wrote um, a wonderful set of poems called Songs from the Plays. Um, that was the title of the book, Songs from the Plays. And they're, what they are are songs. And each song is attributed to a play. Um, and um, sometimes to, sometimes several songs are attributed to um, the same play. Um, the plays that they're attributed to mainly don't exist. Um, occasionally they do exist, but they're plays that um, Koch himself has written. And um, they don't actually appear in the plays, mostly that he's written. A couple of them do, but some, but mainly they don't. It also has a great epigraph for motto, um, which is what? What's an epigraph for motto? Anyone? This is either too simple or too hard. That's why you're looking puzzled. What's an epigraph? Thing written at the beginning of the book. Which? Is taken from somewhere else. Taken from somewhere else. Yeah, it's a quotation taken from somewhere else. Um, and put at the beginning of a poem or at the beginning of a book or something like that. Um, they don't really, people don't start doing them till the 18th century, so it's not something you'll find in um, 16th and 17th century. But his epigraph is um, in this book, Songs from the Plague, but of course there's no chalk. Maybe appropriately is. No, that won't work. <laughs> um, I could ruin the screen. <laughs> Oh, thank you. What are you doing with chalk? Oh, it was uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> Carries chalk around but pretends he doesn't. <laughs> it's around songs. So remember, the title of the book is Songs from the Plays. And the epigraph is... Around songs, everything becomes a play. Shakespeare. Um, what are the odds, do you think? That it's actually from Shakespeare? Why am I asking? It's not a which No, but Shakespeare wrote prose. Well, this is a deep metaphysical question. If you ask what are the odds of an actual event that either occurred or didn't, then the odds are either one or zero. Um, in this case, the odds are zero. It's not from Shakespeare. He made it up. So he makes up this epigraph around songs, everything becomes a play, attributes it to Shakespeare. 
non-existent epigraph from where? Well, from a non-existent play, we would assume. And then he has all these songs, which are also from non-existent plays. Um, and the songs from the plays, well, they're just wonderful. And part of what's wonderful about it is the idea of a song from a play. That's an idea we get from Shakespeare, um, most fully from Shakespeare. Full fathom five thy father lies, of his bones are coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes. Nothing of him that doth fade but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. So there's somehow a way that the songs from the plays themselves suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Um, one of the songs is a song that begins, um, look now where Houseman comes, see how he comes. And it's from a non-existent play called Paris in the 19th century. Um, so Koch got this just really amazing idea of um, the idea of songs from a play and the idea that songs kind of stand um, outside of any context. Um, if you find them, you find them in plays the kind of song he's thinking about, the, these kinds of songs. You may find them in plays. People will sing <coughs> songs in plays. Um, just as in Sydney, there's songs in the middle of Astrophel and Stella. That is, here's a sonnet telling the story. But then the, son then, then the series of sonnets breaks off in order for there to be a song or two songs or three songs. Then the story begins again. We can guess some of the story from the songs, but the songs are separate from the story. The songs are a kind of thing in life which is separate from life. The song is, um, has its own um, existence as something which is not part of a larger narrative, but resists any, any kind of larger narrative. And so if you write a book called Songs from the Plays, what you're actually doing is saying, don't try to put this into any kind of story, but see that the value of a story might be the songs it makes possible, rather than the value of a song being the way it contributes to a story. So does that distinction make sense? Um, there's, to give yet one more example, um, there's a poem by Robert Browning called Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came. You know that? Do other people know it? Um, so do you know where the line is? Yeah, you know it from English 11. And where's the line from? Child Roland to the Dark Tower Came? Shakespeare. Yeah, so in King Lear, it's a line in King Lear, Edgar in King Lear. Suddenly, Edgar, who is mad or pretending to be mad, suddenly sings the line, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. And that's all he sings. Um, and Browning read that line and he said, God, that's an amazing line. Um, and so he wrote a poem whose title was, quote, Child Roland to the Dark Tower came, unquote. And then underneath, a little parentheses, see Edgar's song in Lear. Um, and, if, and if you've never read Lear, you might think, okay, I'll go look at King Lear and figure out what that line means in context so that I can understand. But if you read the line in context, it doesn't mean anything besides itself. So what happens is um, Browning is somehow obsessed with 
that line. And the line is great, and you can imagine that if you had any context for that line, it wouldn't be as great. It's so suggestive, but any context for it that would explain what the Dark Tower was, why Child Roland was going there, what his purpose in going to the Dark Tower was, what he did after he got to the Dark Tower, all those things might be of, of would just take away from what's powerful about it. Yeah. Stephen King asked you wrote a whole series of books on Yep. Yep. Did you ever say that? Did I say it? No. Oh, okay, yeah. But it's true, he did. Um, starting with The Wasteland, yeah. um, which is also an allusion to T.S. Eliot. Um, yeah, so Stephen King, in, in the introduction to it, Stephen King um, wrote like eight novels based on Browning's poem, based on Shakespeare's line. So here's a single line which gives rise to this poem by Browning, which gives rise to eight endless novels by Stephen King. Um, originally he thought it was going to be a trilogy, and then it just, he couldn't figure out how to end it. But what Browning was trying to do, and then what King was trying to do, was somehow write something adequate to the line. That is, here's this great line. Just what could be better than this line? Um, and Browning read the line. He was haunted by it. And what he tried to do was write a poem which would be as good as the line. That is, there, we don't know what it means. There is no context for it in Shakespeare. It's just this amazing <coughs> line. So it's an inspiration. That line is itself an inspiration. It might be an inspiration for you to read. That is, here's this great line. I've got to read the play it comes from because the line is so great. But you might also worry that when you read the play that it comes from, it won't be as great. In fact, you might even know it can't be as great as it seems. So here's an inspiration, but if you go to the actual play, it'll get explained, and there are pluses and minuses to that. But if you've ever had that experience, every time you see trailers for a movie and then you see the movie, you have that experience. The trailers are always better than the movie. The scene out of context is always better than the scene in context, no matter how good the movie is. So here's this great line. I need to know where it comes from. You read where it comes from. If you're lucky, it's still pretty good, but it'll almost never be as great as it was when it was a potentially great thing rather than an actually good thing. So Browning has this great line, and one of the really great things about King Lear is that the line is unexplained. There's this line. That's all you need. So Browning, however, is inspired to write the poem that would end with that line. One of the first choice he makes is that the poem will end with that line. That's a choice. But if you're going to contextualize a line, finally you get to the line and you say, oh, that's where it's from. So he writes a poem that'll contextualize that line by ending with it. But that's a really hard thing to do, because if he explains what the Dark Tower is and what Child Roland is doing looking for the Dark Tower and who Child Roland is and how he came there and where it is um, and what he did when he got there, well, he decides not to do that because he ends with Child Roland to the Dark Tower came. All of that is going to take away from the magical possibility of the line. And so what Browning does is he assigns himself the task of writing a poem that won't ruin the line that inspires it.
and that's a really hard thing to do. But he succeeded well enough that Stephen King found the entire Browning poem as mysterious as Browning found the original Shakespeare line. So he makes his role into Gunslinger, who's in another world, walking along a beach in which strange crab-like creatures are wounding him in terrible ways. And there's also a portal to our world where there's um, a, a, a schmucky fool who um, thinks, God, this is all just like The Shining. Um, which is a movie based on a Stephen King novel that Stephen King actually hated the movie. Um, but what he does over the course, it is eight volumes, right? Yeah. yeah, over the course of the eight volumes. He's working on another one. Oh, is he really? Yeah. So what he's trying to do, though, is not ruin it. So he's now written like a million words that are warding off ruining what the line and what the poem means. Um, so that tells you something about a certain attitude towards poetry, which is the attitude towards, let's say, um, that these poets have towards the idea of a song, which is that it's out of context. The idea of a song, in some ways, is as far as possibly, as far as possible, different from the idea of poetry as self-expression. When you say, oh, I'm so miserable because I'm in love with Anne Boleyn, but um, Henry VIII um, is angry and jealous, and he will kill me just the way he killed her. Um, that is an expression of pure personal anguish. If, on the other hand, you have a line like, brightness falls from the air, um, whatever it is, it's mysterious. Now, in some ways, they can be similar. That is, it can be the mis that Wyatt is incredibly good at getting the mysterious into the personal. But just as conceptual ideas, there's the idea of the poem as highly personal utterance, which you get in Wyatt. They flee from me, who sometime did me seek. She said to me, Dear heart, how like you this. Highly personal utterance. And then there's the idea of this completely mysterious, otherworldly utterance that any explanation is going to reduce, is going to deflate in some way or other. And so the reason I'm asking, what do you want brightness falls from the air to mean, is that what I think you don't want to do is ruin the line by explaining it too successfully. Too successful an explanation will ruin the line. I'll give you an example of what I mean, and thank goodness this is a false explanation. But for a while, there were some literary critics, this was in the early 20th century, um, who saw that line and said, it's obviously a typo. It's beauty is but a flower which wrinkles will devour. So we're talking about female beauty and what happens to um, the looks of a person. Beauty is but a flower which wrinkles will devour. After all, queens have died young and fair. And Helen of Troy, you all get that, right? Mm -hmm. um, even Helen of Troy has died. Her eyes are closed. So what does brightness fall from as women um, uh, grow older? Um, and um, um, are no longer as beautiful as they were um, in, in their youth 
what happens to them? Their hair, Their hair turns gray. <laughs> so clearly what the poet did write, Ran, was brightness falls from the hair. Yeah, that's exactly the right response to have. That's exactly the right response to have, which is no way. No way on earth. And in fact, um, it turns out that no, he, what he did right was brightness falls from the air. Um, but that, that has the merit of utterly and completely and convincingly explaining the line by completely and utterly ruining it. Um, and turning it in from just a sublimely mysterious and delicate, evanescent, um, powerful, shimmering resistance to all any kind of complete explanation to, yeah, it's just a catalog of stuff that happens to people as they, go, as they get older. Um, and that explanation there becomes terrible. Now, just to go back to Wyatt for a second, I think what this line actually r returns us to is, dear heart, how like you this. That is why it is remembering a line that she says. Now we know what the line means, like this is nice, isn't it? But still, that's not what it means to him anymore. What it means to him was this dreamlike moment. It was no dream I lay broad waking, but that tells us it seemed like a dream. It returns us to this dreamlike moment when she all sweetly did him kiss and said to him, dear heart, how like you this? And that's what he's remembering, the moment that she said that one line. So the line itself is what matters, not its meaning, not its context, not the, not the link it constitutes in the chain of events but simply that line. And I think that that's true of Brightness Falls from the Air as well. Um, it's not meaningless. That would be the worst thing to say. Then it could just be pure music. But it's almost the place where meaning itself becomes musical. Um, it's almost the place where, sure, we know what it means in a sense. That the air was brighter, and then that brightness falls away. And we can probably even go further and say that the falling of brightness itself feels like brightness. After all, what does, what does it say that bright, to say that brightness falls from something? Brightness falls from torches, from fires, from lights. They spread brightness around. There's, there's, the brightness falls like a fountain of light. So when you talk about brightness falling, from something. That's a way of saying that that thing is bright. But, but Nash is making it mean both that and its opposite. That is that in the poem, which is about how things are tending towards death, it means what you all were taking it to mean from the start, which is things become less bright. The brightness that is there falls away, disappears. And yet, the words that describe that are the words that describe um, brightness being shed everywhere. That is, they're words that are about something being bright, and yet what they're describing 
is the end of brightness, the falling away of brightness. And it's the fact that it's almost as though um, an expression which is the antonym of what it means nevertheless clearly means what it means. <clears throat> that brightness is as ephemeral as everything else in this poem that makes it so beautiful. But I think, you know, I really think the most important thing you can, you can know about this line is how beautiful it is. It's the most important thing you can know about it. Um, and anything that takes away from that beauty, like, oh, it's obviously hair. <clears throat> he probably spoke with a Cockney accent and people just kind of mistranscribed it. Well, now, Governor, brightness falls from the air, doesn't it? Um, it's the worst thing you could say about it. Um, yeah. I was wondering about your explanation of this in contrast to when we talked about, like, the burning babe or, like, something. Yeah. Because, like, you were really adamant about, like, knowing the meaning of a particular line and, like, making sure the metaphor followed through. Yeah. It's like, why is it necessary there but not necessary here? That's a really good question. And I think the answer is that Nash is a really great poet and Salville isn't. That is to say that it's Nash who is adamant about the meaning. That's exactly the connection to make, is the burning babe. You know, that's also brightness in the air, right? Um, and that's exactly the connection to make. Um, if you were, here's a, here's a very useful game to play. Um, ask yourself, take a line like this, um, or any other really great line that we've looked at, and ask yourself, how would the various poets we've read interpret that line? And um, it, the, the, they're, they're, they're good versions of this game always to be played in literature. One, one version, which is, I think, kind of standard for me. I mean, standard, what other standards do I hold myself to? Um, is to ask in any Shakespeare play, who in the play would be the best reader of the play? Who in the play would best understand the play? Who in the play would be the best audience of the play? You sometimes get surprising answers. But in Hamlet, clearly Hamlet would be the best audience for Hamlet. In Lear, it's probably the fool who would understand the play best, not Lear. Um, in Antony and Cleopatra, Probably Antony, even though Cleopatra is its central figure, but it's probably Antony who would understand the play best. In Romeo and Juliet, Juliet clearly would understand the play best, and Romeo would be clueless. Mm -hmm. um, but that's always a question that can um, get you to fold a play back on itself or fold um, a set of work back on itself to figure out where, how to focus it. Um, where does it fold back on itself? So what I would say is that um, it's also useful, although it's hard to find examples of this, it's always useful to find examples of this, to look at how one poet edits another, how one poet um, suggests changes um, to the poem of someone else or to a friend. You also have this in music. You probably know, you probably know. That, um, m that the standard version of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is Mahler's um, changing of some of the pitches. That is, Mahler took things, put some, octave, put some things an octave higher and some things an octave lower. And that's how it's always played now, I think, is in Mahler's version. Um, the tweaks are minor, but Mahler could hear and Beethoven couldn't. And Mahler knew what would work and what wouldn't. Um, if you could actually hear the Ninth Symphony. If you were only reading it, Beethoven's version is better. 
but if it has to be performed, um, everyone agrees that Mahler's version is better for performance. Did you know that? No. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, okay. Um, and Toscanini always followed. Toscanini, who was Mahler's son-in-law, always followed his version. Um, so, but it's always interesting to see how poets um, tweak other poets. Um, Wordsworth and Coleridge did that for each other. Pound did that for Eliot. Eliot wrote The Wasteland, um, and Pound basically cut half of it out um, and made it um, a much... Turned, turned a horrible poem into a mediocre poem. Um, the, um, that's interesting because it, sh because it tells you as much about the poet doing the editing as it does about the poem being edited. So imagine what Nash would do with The Burning Babe. What do you think he would have done? Well, you think he would slaughter it and like, redo it. Well, I think he would have crossed stuff out. I, I liked it. Yeah, but do you like all of it equally? Oh, no. So, what part do you like? I have to like, go back. I don't really remember. I liked the first part a lot, and the last. I liked the first part and the last part, and then the middle was sort of fuzzy. You like the furnace? So, I thought it was a really interesting image. Like it was weird, but good. Well, you know, you know Hemingway's famous statement: "Kill your babies." Um, it's charming. Um, <laughs> he basically, he, he says that, um, look, it's fine for, in your first draft of a story, it's fine for you to put everything in, um, but then the stuff that you like best is probably the stuff you have to leave out. Um, and that's what he means by killing your babies. And his example is that um, he tells a story about a guy who ends up hanging himself. He, it's an experience of despair. And at the end of the story, the guy hangs himself because he's, he's so upset and full of despair. I don't know if, this is, if Hemingway actually ever wrote this, but he says he did. And then he said he realized it would be a much better story if he just left that part out, um, where the guy kills himself, um, and just ends it um, at the point where, in the first draft, he then goes out and gets a rope. And, and he just ends it right there. And um, so the very thing that's going to make the story, you know, ratified the despair. Yes, he really did feel despair. Um, what Hemingway said was, look, I knew he killed himself. Um, didn't have to be part of the story. And it made it a much better story to leave it out. It's not that he doesn't kill himself. It's just that Hemingway doesn't tell us it, tell us that. Um, or to give, I'll give one example because I actually know this example. There's a great unheard of poet, uh, very few people know of him. Um, who only published one book named Alvin Feynman. Um, he died a couple of years ago. Um, he published one book in 1965. I actually tried to get him to come be a Fanny Hurst here for a while, um, and I talked to him on the phone, but he said he just wanted to grow his eggplants. Um, um, but he wrote this amazing poem called November Sunday Morning, um, and... Um, whose last stanza goes, um, how does it go? Light is the all-exacting good, that dry, forever, forever virile stream that cleans each, no, what, that something's each thing to what it is, um, cleanse to its proper pastoral. And then a final line, I sit, and smoke and linger out desire. 
So that's almost Sydney. Still desire cries, give me some food. But ah, desire still cries, give me some food. The, um, light is the old exacting good that dry forever, feral stream. Oh. Something like that purges, but it's one syllable. Each thing to what it is, cleanse to its proper pastoral. I sit and smoke and linger out desire. Just a great last line. November Sunday morning, just this, this, this somehow this epiphany that there's nothing you can do with but wait for it to go. So he published this in 1965. Um, this book is <coughs> called Preambles and Other Poems. Um, just some of the titles are really, really wonderful. One of them is, one title is Three Elementary Pro Prophecies. Three Elementary Prophecies. Um, this is another poem called True Night. Um, the widow wedded to her grief, the hangman haloed in remorse um, are lines from that. So the widow wedded to her grief. Just think what a good line that is. Um, she's a widow, but a wife also wedded to what? To her grief for her dead husband. The hangman haloed in remorse as though the rope around the neck of the person hanged has now become the same circle but a halo around the guilty hangman's head because he feels remorse for what he's done. Um, or there's a great poem called Snow um, um, in which he, um, uh, how does it end? Um, that the person looking through the window at the blear hazarder um, during the snow. Now it begins now sudden or again this early quiet but at the end someone looking out the window um, sees the snow which lies um, like a ghostly, the gods send down a ghostly argument pulver of nothing assuageable um, and the person looking at the snow through the window mistakes its signature as though snow were its poem out of snow. So he has these just, I mean, I don't know if you can see how amazing they are just from, from these frag fragmentary quotations, but they are amazing. Amazing set of poems. Um, if I ever digressed, I would digress to say that there's one, which I don't, but if I ever did, I would digress to say that there's one poem in the book which is called Impasse de deux anges, that is the impasse of two angels. Just such a fantastic title. Um, and one day I was walking through Paris, and I came upon l'impasse de deux anges. What an, what an impasse is in Paris is a, basically a dead-end street. That's what it means. And if you look at street signs, some of them say rue de or avenue de. And this one just said impasse de deux anges. So suddenly I said, oh my god, that's what he, that's what he was talking about. Um, so he named a poem after a dead end in Paris. Um, but it's a great title for a poem, you must admit. Um, so there's this poem, November Sunday Morning, um, and uh, the driver of a feral stream. Oh, I wish I remembered. Um, and it ends with that great line, I sit and smoke and linger out desire. So he published the book in 1965. Then in like 1987, having refused to publish any more poems and refused ever to let the book be reprinted. It's a really hard book to find. Um, 
he decided, I guess, the eggplants weren't putting enough food on the table. Um, he decided that he'd let it be reprinted. And so I got the paperback version. And there's November Sunday morning. I'm reading it, and there's another stanza. And the stanza is, so I sit and smoke and linger out desire. Um, then I go, it's something like, I'm going to parody it a little bit, but only a little. Then I go back in um, and um, wake up my wife, and we um, arrange the things for brunch because our friends are coming. The end. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> what have you done? Um, and um, it turned out that that was the original version. And he was, he, Alvin Feynman, when he published his book, was an assistant professor of philosophy at Yale and friends with Harold Bloom. And um, Harold Bloom, he gave Harold Bloom the manuscript. And Bloom said, this is great, this is great, this last stanza sucks, um, and crossed it out and um, said, you cannot publish it with this last stanza. It's got to end. I sit and smoke and linger out desire. And that's how it was published. Bloom basically tweaked the book. Bloom, who's not, who's written like one poem um, and who is not a great poet by any means, nevertheless knew how to read. And what he, said, what he did was sort of like Michelangelo, is that um, he had, Feynman had a really good poem with some extra material in it. And Bloom was the one who took that extra material out um, and turned a really good poem into a sublime poem. But then Feynman apparently harbored some resentment over this for like 25 years and restored the stuff that made it not quite so good. Um, so that's an example of what a good reader can do. Um, it's like the Japanese art of finding scholars' rocks. There's actually a name for this, but I forget what it is. Um, but seeing rocks and collecting them, and what um, the high um, point of this art was actually in the 12th century. Um, that's when people saw rocks best. And it's part of Japanese aesthetic history that people say, you know, people just can't find rocks the way they used to. Um, and it's not that the rocks aren't there. It's that the capacity to see that skill, that art, that technique has not been lost, but isn't as great as it once was. People can no longer draw like Raphael. People can no longer paint like Vermeer. And people can no longer see rocks the way they did in the 12th century. Um, it's not a physical impossibility. It's an art. So seeing, reading, feeling, experiencing something as in the mode of possibility um, that's something that you could imagine one poet doing to another. So if you look at the burning, I mean, now, now this is obviously ridiculous because um, it's, it's um, making a claim that we can see how Nash would see what Suffolk saw. But if you go back to the burning babe, which is, you know, is a really good thing to bring up, um, which is, uh, around page, what, 400 or so, uh, 394. As I in hoary winter's night stood shivering in the snow, surprised I was with sudden heat, which made my heart to glow. 
And lifting up a fearful eye to view what fire was near, a pretty babe all burning bright did in the air appear. What do you think Nash would have done with that? Left that and kept it as a song. That's what I think, yeah. It would have been a song. Just that part? I think so. Then you don't know it's Jesus. Yeah. And? But if you knew who the poet was, you would have assumed who the crazy it was. Is it better or worse that it's Jesus? That's a way of asking the question. Well, I think it's better because we don't know, and I think the realization of something you didn't know at the beginning is what makes the poem good. Okay, so um, <laughs> here, this is, I, I guess, a digressive class. Um, here's, an, here's another example. There's a line, in, but this is Shakespeare. There's a line in a Shakespeare sonnet, Time, one of the first 20 sonnets about the young man. Time shall transfix the flourish set on youth, says Shakespeare. So what do you think of that line? Time shall transfix the flourish set on youth. I've said it, I've, I've done my this is a good line voice, right? Mm -hmm. Time shall transfix the flourish set on youth. Good line, right? Here, let me prompt an answer for you. Good line, right? Sure. You don't think so? I've heard better. Well, sure, but it, yeah, there are a lot of better lines in Shakespeare, but still. Um, so a flourish is set upon youth. We may not know quite what that means. Time will transfix a flourish. We may not quite know what that means. How do you transfix a flourish? Um, but we know, nevertheless, basically what it means, and that it's kind of pretty high language, high in, a, in, in the sense of, of rhetorically um, um, powerful language for something whose meaning we get, just as we get the meaning of brightness falls from the air, um, but can't quite picture. Edmund Burke, in his um, um, inquiry into the sublime and beautiful, talks about the sublime in words. And he says, if someone says to you, an angel, then you can picture it very easily, a beautiful young man with wings. But look what happens if you add a phrase, an angel of the Lord. And suddenly, we're not in the world of picturing. Just adding of the Lord makes it sublime. Or another example he gives us from Milton. Rocks, lakes, fogs, dens. Um, what is it? Rocks, lakes, fogs, um, dens, swamps of death. And he says, just add the word of death to that list of things, and suddenly everything changes. So there is a kind of rhetorical style where our picturing capacity is suddenly defeated by some grandeur which is only in language, and which is not language imitating a picture. It's not a thousand words imitating a picture, but it's 12 words doing something a picture could never do an angel of the Lord, or the Lord of hosts, or a universe of death. Yeah. So couldn't you argue that in a lot of ways the evolution of poetry is moving further away from actual uh, literal stories being told in a poetic form towards these sort of generated abstractions? Because, you know, by the time you get to, like, E.E. E. Cummings, every single line is one of those yeah. lines. You know, like, no one, not even the rain, has such small hands. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but the question is, um, where, how do you maximize the power of that? And I think if you get too abstract or if it comes too fast and furious, you lose it. Um, so that's why there can only be one line like brightness falls from the air. And if you tried to do a whole poem like that, it would just be ridiculous. You know, well, brightness falls from the air and, you know. Sorry? Yeah. 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 But that's in a way what Eliot is also doing, not in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, but in The Wasteland, he takes his favorite lines from um, other, other poem, poets. You all know that, right? That the best lines in The Wasteland are not Eliot. Um, Run softly, sweet Tamas, till I end my song. Where's that from? You should know. Because you read it in this class. It's Spencer's Prothalamian. Um, such a great line. There it is in the wasteland. Um, there was this, I, I, I heard about someone who was saying, oh, an Italian professor of American studies who was saying, you know, the wasteland is such a wonderful, I'm not going to do his Italian accent, although I should, it's a better story with the accent. But the wasteland is such a wonderful poem. Um, um, and when he was challenged, but actually, you know, it isn't really. He said, how can you say that? Look at lines like, Run softly, sweet Thames, till I end my song. Um, yeah, it's a totally wonderful line, but it's not Eliot. Um, or so many, remember, a crowd flowed over London Bridge. So many, I had not thought death had undone so many. Um, where's that from? Anyone know? I had not thought death had undone so many. Yeah, it's the Inferno. Good. Yeah, all the really great lines in the wasteland are elsewhere. And what Eliot is doing, actually, is saying, God, this line is great. Um, if you look it up, you may not find it so great, although those lines you would. But God, this line is great. Um, and yeah, he's right. He's a really good reader, Eliot is. Um, and what he's really good at doing is, like those people who find rocks, he's got an eye for a great line. So we could ask, if Eliot were quoting Subtle, what would he quote? And if you were putting a line of Southerls into the wasteland, you know, which is just a grab bag of good lines, you know, um, uh, you know something like, um, um, what is it? You gave me violets once a year. What is it? You gave me what a year ago? Hyacinths once a year ago. They called me the hyacinth girl. And as I in hoary winter's night stood shivering in the snow, with those hyacinths wreathed around me as the Thames flowed till I ended my song. <laughs> Surprised I was with sudden heat, and I looked up and there was a pretty babe all burning bright. You can imagine Eliot just producing a farrago of these great lines. But what he wouldn't pick is, my faultless breast the furnace is. Um, that's not the line he would pick. So that's what I mean. That's, I think, I feel like the audiences are different for the two different Yeah. Things. Yeah, so. yeah, but right now you're the audience. Well, I feel like I can appreciate both poems, but for very different reasons. But which one could you get obsessed by? Okay, fair. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. All right, good. Uh, someone's, someone else's hand was up? Yeah, I mean, yeah. the metal in this furnace wrought are men's defiled souls. That's pretty good. Men's defiled souls is pretty good. Yeah, it's it's okay, but not not if it's an extended metaphor. Um, Dr. Johnson has a um, wonderful little moment where he describes a poem of Cooley's, where Cooley where Cooley in the poem 
um, talks about throwing the throwing the laurel that he's received as a poet um, into the fire and hearing it snap um, as the fire burns it. And Johnson remarks, um, it is the odd fate of this metaphor for be, um, to be the worse for being true. Um, if you do throw real actual laurel into a fire, it will snap and, and, and pop in exactly the way that Cooley's describing it. And so the problem is the literal truth of what he's saying prevents the metaphorical power of what he's saying to come to the fore. Um, and so that's something Johnson notices. And that's whether you agree with him or not, it's a really neat thing to notice. So here you have this great line, brightness falls from the air. And I think we can talk about what makes it great. But what we may not want to do is um, reduce it to some paraphrase, although we do a lot of paraphrasing and should. Um, there are places where paraphrase should stop. Yeah. So wait, Johnson was arguing that something like, say, my bones snap like laurel in the fire would be a good line, but my laurel well, I don't fire think... snaps like laurel, laurel in the fire is a bad one. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think my bones snap. Maybe it would, but... Um, but being able to see that this is really, this is really the case um, interferes with, with the power of it. You know, what if it were like, what if this poem were from another planet and it turned out that that planet had, had magnesium in its atmosphere um, and that when the sun went down, what happened was, um, oh, I don't know, phosphorus in the atmosphere, that there was something that got excited by ultraviolet light, but when the sun went down, um, what you could see is um, just a descent. Uh, it's actually kind of a nice image. I like it. Never mind. Um, but what if there were some literal truth to the idea of brightness falling from the air? Um, that would be unfortunate. Um, that, that would be um, what you would want the line to mean it could no longer mean. Um, or what you would want the line not to mean it would start meaning. Um, you could fix its meaning. And what's amazing about it is its unfixability. As I say, I think that's what Wyatt is doing with Dear Heart, How Like You This, the moment, the only moment that he quotes her. Um, and he says, you know, it's, it had all the intensity of a dream. I think you want lines that do have all the intensity of a dream. To go back to Savile, the explanation of the burning babe takes it out of the dream and makes it just a, just a metaphor, um, just a parable. Um, a fable of some sort instead of a dream. Um, if you think of Kafka's parables, they're fables that don't have any meaning besides their surface. And that would, that's what makes them so powerful. It's like in Kafka, if a fox or a crow, to take a famous one, you know, there's Aesop's fables about the fox and the crow, the fox flatters the crow, the crow <coughs> drops the cheese. Kafka also tells fables about crows, partly because Kafka means crow. Um, but in Kafka, there's no moral, and the crows are really interesting. Um, and they're interesting as crows and not as um, standing for people who are easily flattered the way they are in Aesop. Um, so that's, that's a difference, is hurrying what Keats calls irritable reaching after fact, which is what Keats is against. Um, he's against what he calls the... Um, he, he talks about something he calls negative capability, a very famous phrase in Keats, negative capability. Um, and what negative capability means is the capability to stay um, 
within a negative space and not try to resolve something. Um, the capability to look and um, perceive something, he then goes on, without any irritable reaching after fact, trying to find out what it really is. Um, and that's something he said Shakespeare had in the extreme, was negative capability. Um, and um, he thought that was great. That's what it would mean to appreciate this line, just for itself, would be to have negative capability. Brightness falls from the air. Um, just to like a song as a song. Not to say, what's this song doing here? Um, but to say, yeah, it's a song. Um, so let's look at Daniel. Um, and there are just a couple of places that um, I want to look. First, notice the, in, this, in this edition of Delia, what do you notice about the first, I think it's five sonnets? Maybe it's four, one, two, three, four. no, it's five. Um, yeah. The last line of each sonnet is the first line of each sonnet. Right. So did everyone notice that? It's, it's um, quite a pyrotechnical feat. Um, Dunn does something similar in what's called the La Corona sonnets, where they actually cycle. Um, the last line of each sonnet is the first line of the next until the last line of the last is the first line of the first. What poetic form that we've looked at quite recently does that remind you of? Yeah, good. Um, but that can tell you, again, something about the effect of that form. So let's just um, look. At the, Daniel is really good. I hope you felt that he was really good. Um, you didn't? I did. Yeah. You were surprised. Uh, yes, I was. Yeah. No, he's, he's really good. Um, so this is, th these, um, Delia is 50 sonnets long, 5-0. Um, and these appear, I think they're sonnets 31 through 36. So there's this the sequence within Delia where this happens. Look, Delia, how we steam the half-blown rose, the image of thy blush and, summer, and summer's honor. Steam there means esteem, um, how, how much esteem we feel for it. Look, Delia, how we steam the half-blown rose, the image of thy blush and summer's honor. Whilst in her tender green she doth enclose that pure sweet beauty time bestows upon her. So this is a carpe florum poem. No sooner spreads her glory in the air. And Daniel really likes, even more than Nash, he likes stuff to happen in the air. Um, no sooner does she, the rose, spreads her glory in, her, in the air, but straight her full-blown pride is in declining. She then is scorned that late adorned the fair. Notice that internal rhyme. She then is scorned that late adorned the fair. So clouds thy beauty after fairest shining. No April can revive thy withered flowers, whose blooming grace adorns thy glory now. Sif, swift, speedy time, feathered with flying hours, dissolves the beauty of the fairest brow. Oh, let not then such riches waste in vain, but love, whilst that thou mayst be loved again. So it's you should be loving while people still are interested in you, like um, me. Um, but then the next one. But love whilst, whilst that thou mayest be loved again, now whilst thy may hath filled thy lap with flowers, now whilst thy beauty bears without a stain, 
now use thy summer smiles, ear winter flowers. So um, what's the difference in the word but at the end of the previous sonnet and the first word but at the beginning of this one? Yeah. Uh, at the end of the first one, it's it's motivation, like saying you should. I don't know. I don't explain it. Um, it's like a command or saying you should do this, but in the first, as the first line. It's setting up a negation, or yeah, I think you're right. In the in the first one, it's technically a conjunction. Um, you know that but is a conjunction. Everyone, no one has trouble with the idea that and is a conjunction. It sort of defines what a conjunction is. Um, but in but but is also a conjunction. Um, but is a conjunction in the sense that it's um, putting two clauses together and linking them. It's just saying that the relation between their meanings isn't simply the repetition, one repeating another. Um, so it's, oh, let not then such riches waste in vain. And it's not going to mean something very different if you replace and, if you put and where but is. Oh, let not then such riches waste in vain. And love, whilst that thou mayest be loved again. Um, the only reason he doesn't put in and is that there's an ambiguity there, which is it might sound like let not such riches waste in vain, and let not, and let it not be the case that thou lovest whilst that thou mayest be loved again. So the but just indicates that this is a whole new um, clause, but it's still a conjunction. It conjoins two things. Here are two things I want to say to you. One, let not thy and such riches waste in vain. And two, love whilst that, they may, that thou mayest be loved again. And but captures that. So it's a conjunction. Um, in 317, the but is not a conjunction. It means only. It's an adverb. Here's the one thing you should do. Love whilst that they must, mayest be loved again. Don't do anything else. The only thing you should do is love, but love rather than doing anything else. Get rid of everything else but love. So it's everything but love rather than but you should love. So do you see the difference there? Um, so it's the same line, but the words are meaning something different. Sorry? I thought that, the, that it was just referencing the earlier poems so like in the sequence. It, it is and it's not. So, it's, so um, a good sestina will do this also, which is that it will use the same word but mean something different by it. Um, what Sidney does in Ye Goat Herd Gods is um, he turns mountains to valleys um, and valleys into mountains and, day in, and morning into evening and evening into morning. Um, it does a complete reversal of the meanings of things. But generally what you will get in decent sestinas is, is semi-puns on the end words. Um, sometimes a sestina will just give you a negation of an end word, like um, necessary will be the end of one line, and then the next line will end with unnecessary. 
Um, but that still counts because they both end with necessary. Um, so, but love, don't do anything else whilst that thou mayest be loved again. Now whilst the may hath filled thy lap with flowers, now whilst thy beauty bears without a stain, now use the summer smiles ere winter lowers. And whilst thou spreadst unto the rising sun the fairest flower that ever saw the light, now joy thy time before thy sweet be done, and Delia think thy morning must have night, and that thy brightness sets at length to west, when thou wilt closed up that which now thou showest and think the same becomes thy fading best, which then shall hide it most and cover lowest. Men do not weigh the stalk for what it was when once they find her flower, her glory, pass. So it's not, oh, this flower used to be really beautiful. Look, I'm so proud. I have the stalk of what was once a beautiful flower. When men shall find thy flower, thy glory pass, and thou with careful brow, sitting alone, received, hast this message from thy glass that tells thee truth and says that all is gone, fresh shalt thou see in me the wounds thou madest. So notice what he's saying here is the when at the end of 317 is there will be a time when no one will care about you anymore. The when at the beginning of 318 is when you're old, Nevertheless, you'll see me still loving you. So he's meaning, again, something different by the same line. Or it's, or it's introducing, it's part of a different thought. Um, Though spent thy flame in me, the heat remaining. I that have loved thee thus before thou fadest, my faith shall wax when thou art in thy waning. The world shall find this miracle in me that fire can burn when all the matter is spent. Then what my faith hath been, thyself shalt see. And that thou wast unkind, thou mayest repent, thou mayest repent that thou hast scorned my tears when winter snows upon thy golden hairs. Um, so when winter snows, and here's another when, when winter snows upon thy golden hairs, and frost of age hath nipped thy flowers near, when dark shall seem thy day that never clears, and all lies withered that was held so dear, then take this picture which I here present thee. So it's a very complex relation to the present time. So now he's saying, when that happens, take what I'm saying now. He's back to the present. Take this picture that I here present thee, limbed with a pencil, not all unworthy. Here see the gifts that God and nature lent thee. Here read thyself and what I suffered for thee. This may remain thy lasting monument, which happily posterity may cherish. That is us in 2012. These colors with thy fading are not spent. These may remain when thou and I shall perish. If they remain, then thou shalt live thereby. They will remain, and so thou canst not die. Thou canst not die, whilst any zeal abound in feeling hearts that can conceive these lines. Though thou, Alora, hast no Petrarch found in base attire, yet clearly beauty shines. Um, so. He's, notice how she's becoming like Laura. I, the, we're going over this too fast, but the last thing to notice and, and um, to see is the um, poem called Musophilus, um, uh, um, um, which there are sections of. I hope you noticed the part where Philocosmos, that is the lover of the world, um, talks. This is page 527. He says, why should you be a poet? 
how silly of you, how many thousands never heard the name of Sidney or of Spencer or their books, and yet brave fellows and presume of fame and seem to bear down all the world with looks. What then shall they expect of meaner frame on whose endeavors few or none scarce looks? So look at, look at Sidney and Spencer is still alive when he writes this. Um, he, his sister is actually a character in one of Spencer's poems. Um, Daniel had a sister who uh, Spencer writes about in the Shepherd's Calendar. Um, so look at those two poets. No, one's, no one's ever heard of them. And they certainly aren't going to be remembered. And now look at you. What are you spending your time writing poetry on? And his answer is, basically, it's a world in there. It's a world by itself. It doesn't have to be contextualized in the real world. So, so um, Philocosmos, the lover of the world, thinks poetry is stupid. And Philomusis, Philomusis, the lover of the muse, says, no, it's just, just the poem for the poem is worth it. So OK, uh, done for, we're done. And so will you be. Oh, um, yeah. The final exam schedule came out. Yeah, if we're going to do it in class. Okay. I decided I didn't want to give you, I, I decided you guys would freak out at the idea of a three-hour final. Yeah. Um, so freak out only at one-third that, that length. <laughs>